Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. What will happen if both Donald Trump and Joe Biden claim victory in November? Unfortunately, according to scholars Larry Diamond and Ned Foley, American election laws provide a shockingly inadequate guide for resolving such a deadlock. We'll talk to Diamond and Foley about what could trigger a contested election, the limitations of the laws and constitutional provisions that govern electoral college disputes, and the steps we can take to forestall what they call a disaster scenario. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For months, President Trump has questioned the integrity of this election. He's tweeted there will be widespread fraud because of the increased use of mail-in ballots, though he votes by mail himself, and that the election should be delayed, leading to fears that Trump might not concede if he loses or that the results will lead to both Trump and Joe Biden declaring victory. Well, Stanford's Larry Diamond and Ohio State's Ned Foley have sobering news. They write in The Atlantic this month that the U.S.'s laws on presidential elections provide a shockingly inadequate guide for resolving an electoral college dispute. They join us now. Larry Diamond is senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. He's also author of Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency. Thanks for joining us on Forum, Larry Diamond. Uh, Good morning, Nina. Also with us is Ned Foley, professor of constitutional law and director of the election law program at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. He's also author of the presidential elections. He's also author of presidential elections and majority rule, the rise, demise and potential restoration of the Jeffersonian Electoral College. Thanks for joining us as well, Ned Foley. That's great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Larry Diamond, I'll start with you. I mentioned the president's tweets attacking mail-in voting as one factor that could contribute to an election crisis. But what else about this environment that this election is being carried out in that worries you the most? Well, uh, equivocation and commitment to fundamental democratic norms and the intense level of political polarization that could induce actors to violate those norms in ways that we haven't even imagined in the last 150 years. Um, uh, The toxic mix of foreign interference uh, could add to it and dramatize the suspicion about mail-in voting, the interaction with the COVID pandemic, and the fact that uh, mail-in voting won't be evenly distributed between the two parties, but that a vastly disproportionate share, Nina, of the uh, mail-in ballots will be by Democratic voters. And this creates the possibility, with it, which then leads into the most likely crisis scenario, that on election night, it will look like President Trump is winning a clear victory, but with huge numbers of votes still to be counted, and disproportionately Democratic votes. When those votes, when the the valid votes are all counted, President Trump may have an electoral college victory or he may not. 
but he shouldn't declare it on election night without huge numbers of votes uh, being counted. Yes, I mean, Ned Foley, Larry Diamond has just laid out, you know, the concerns and also the scenario that could unfold. What is the scenario that worries you the most? And can you talk about how both, you know, Larry Diamond is talking about and the concerns that you have play out potentially on election night? Sure, Nina, I'd be happy to. Um, in some ways, the thing I'm most worried about is that despite the pandemic and all the stresses, that we'll actually be able to have a valid result, that the system will work hmm. well enough to give us an outcome that is genuinely the choice of the voters as a group, but that there'll be so much doubt and distrust and that the public narrative will take hold that we don't know what the answer is, that despite the system working well enough, people won't believe it. And, and that's a failure in and of itself. Uh, so that's a big fear on my part. Yes, and you went really deep on the state level. You basically laid out a scenario that could happen in Pennsylvania. First, can you talk about why you chose Pennsylvania for this scenario? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the reason is uh, a lot of the prognosticators think it could be the pivotal state. If, if folks know the website 538, Nate Silver and his team, um, they often try to pre um, predict which is going to be the, um, the battle, you know, the one state that's pivotal to the Electoral College. And right now they're estimating that's Pennsylvania. Even if it's not that, it could be Wisconsin or whatever, it's definitely gonna be a key battleground. But it's not been stress tested the way some other states have in the past. Florida is perennially litigated over its voting process. It was the source of the Florida 2000. So in some sense, they've been through this. Ohio, my state has been through this. Uh, Wisconsin has been through this. Pennsylvania hasn't been tested in quite this way. Uh, and and so they may get the fire this time and not be quite ready for it. I hate to use that metaphor fire right now because of all that everybody in the West Coast is going through, but it would be the electoral equivalent of, of, a, of a, you know, a disaster. Um, we hope it's not going to be a disaster. We hope it turns out to be fine. But if there's any state that's vulnerable, I think it's Pennsylvania. And so basically, I mean, let's say that on election night, Trump is ahead in the polls in Pennsylvania and doing quite well. This is not something that's totally unusual, right, where in the swing states um, <clears throat> it would favor one candidate over the other by tens of thousands of votes. Uh, and then as the more ballots come in and are counted, Joe Biden starts to pull ahead can you talk about how that could devolve into a partisan dispute? Sure, and, and mm -hmm. yeah, and Larry can jump in too. Um, so the there is a in every state has a process for um, counting votes, uh, including all of the absentee votes that voters are entitled to use. And Pennsylvania, for example, has, has a state that has made the transition to what's called no excuse vote by mail which means it's completely the voter's choice whether they want to use a, a, an absentee ballot or they prefer to vote in person. So that's their option. Uh, if you vote by mail in Pennsylvania, like elsewhere, it's got to be verified before it can actually be counted. It just doesn't automatically get counted. You check the voter registration database, you check the signature, anything else that state law requires in that regard. Um, and that's a process that has its good points, it's in, for the integrity of the system that you do that verification, but that's the first point of entry, if you will, where you could have challenges, where the two candidates, if they wanna fight, they, they can fight over whether or not those absentee ballots actually get to be counted, whether you actually open up the envelopes and, and tally the votes. And from there, the, the, you can appeal those decisions. Uh, if it's close enough, you can have recounts. Uh, the legal process does allow for disputes if you think you have a legitimate basis. And, and what I guess I should stress in that regard, um, no one should doubt the validity of the ballots or the counting of the ballots unless there's evidence for that doubt. Uh, that The systems are in place to do adequate ver verification and to protect the integrity 
um, the question is whether the public narrative tracks the reality of the verification process. Uh, and that could be a fight both in the courts, but also in the media. But ultimately, there, Larry Diamond, I mean, there would need to be someone declared a winner, right? And there is a period of time when you can keep counting votes. Are you okay. are you thinking that it's possible that uh, that not all the ballots would be counted by the time that the election you know, needs to end, that sort of safe harbor period needs to, to end? Well, uh, uh, Nina, I think that we have to decompose this into several possible crisis scenarios. So let me just keep building on what Ned was saying. Sure. Uh, one is uh, just getting through and um, validating uh, all of the uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, and if it's... I, I, I'm now putting this into two categories, but of course, the two categories can merge into one another. Um, one category is a, you know, razor thin election margin in a state like Pennsylvania, say um, a margin even less than half a percentage point, which in many states would trigger an automatic recount. Um, or something even as close as Florida 2000, where we might not only get a recount, but actually, you know, an agonizing process of contestation and litigation over um, specific uh, mail-in ballots and whether the signatures match and other details that uh, Ned could talk about that could trigger disputes. And I think the danger is not so much that a, uh, that a count of the mail-in ballots won't be completed in the, what, roughly five weeks between uh, November 3rd and the safe harbor deadline for certifying the Electoral College result from the state of December 8th. The danger, uh, although I, I'm worried even about that in some states, but the danger is that the dispute process won't be resolved. Mm. And if the safe harbor deadline remains December 8th, but there's still court cases or petitions and litigation and so on, then it will fall to the Congress on January 6th to try and resolve this. Uh, and we can get into that phase of the crisis that we talk about in our article, but it would be much better if all of the legitimate processes could be deployed to resolve disputes and have the state come up with only one true electoral college result rather than have two competing uh, uh, electoral college slates emerge from the state petitioning the Congress on January 6th to be recognized as the state's legitimate electoral college votes. And this is why we think it is so important for the Congress to pass the bill that Marco Rubio has in, uh, introduced in the Senate that would extend the safe harbor deadline for certifying a state's electoral college votes from December 8th to January 1st and extend the actual vote of the electoral college from December 14th to January 2nd. Well, we'll get more into that after the break. We're talking with Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, Ned Foley, Professor of Constitutional Law and Director of the Election Law Program at Ohio State University. And we're with you, our listeners. Give us a call with your questions about what could happen in an electoral college dispute post this election. Are you worried about a contested election? 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the effect of a contested election and how U.S. election law is inadequate to guide us out of a constitutional crisis, according to Larry Diamond and Ned Foley, both scholars who wrote a recent Atlantic piece, The Terrifying Inadequacy of American Election Law. And you, our listeners, are with us. Again, if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. And of course, you can email us at forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. So I just want to dig into a little bit of what Larry Diamond was saying, Ned Foley, just before the break, which is he was saying that if the state ended up certifying two different slates of electors? I mean, how would that be possible? Yeah, it seems unimaginable, except it happened once before. This is, you know, way back in the 19th century, 1876, the Hayes-Tilden dispute, and none of us were around for that. And many of us were around for 2000. So our memory of a disputed election sort of ends with the U.S. Supreme Court in December, and then Vice President Gore accepting uh, that decision. Um, but that's not the only way these things have can end. Uh, and the Hayes-Tilden dispute was much worse for the reasons that Larry said. How could that happen? It could be a couple of different ways. Um, one possibility is the election officials uh, certified the tally of the popular vote according to the rules. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about how the election night returns might favor uh, President Trump and then the later counted ballots uh, favor uh, Vice President Biden, all of which are valid bo- votes. And therefore, the officials know what the result is and they certify it. And let's just hypothetically say it's a, a victory for Vice President Biden. But if the public narrative has gotten to the point of distrusting it because the counting was changed so the, the election night preliminary result was opposite to the final result. Then what if political forces take over in a given state, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, what have you, and the legislature decides it wants to try to repudiate the certification of the popular result. It doesn't believe it. Uh, it, it, it accepts the narrative that there must be something wrong, fraud, counterfeit, whatever. Not true, but if that takes hold, uh, the Constitution gives state legislatures, this is Article Two of the Constitution, the power to determine the method for appointing electors. Again, we as citizens, we vote for the electors of the Electoral College. Now, all the states for a long, long time have said, let's do that on the basis of a popular vote. So the legislatures in that sense have already spoken by setting up the popular vote for all of us. But the federal law that implements that says that the legislatures can come back into the process if the popular vote fails. Then the legislature can step in and say, well, we've got to fix the failure. Now, the the reality wouldn't be a failure. The reality would be the certified popular vote that the officials announce. Uh, But if the legislature thinks, oh, we think it actually failed, they would attempt to appoint electors themselves. And that's where you could have this these two competing submissions because the Biden electors would meet on December 14th pursuant to the certification of the popular vote and and then send their electoral votes to Congress because they think they're the real electors from the state. But the Trump electors would meet also on December 14th saying they're the real electors because they were appointed by the legislature. And that's what you had back in Hayes-Tilden, the Hayes electors and the Tilden electors both met on the same day claiming to be the real electors and Congress had to sort it out. Wow. So like the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania could send in the electors and then the Republican controlled legislature could send in Republican electors. But wouldn't the courts, Larry Diamond, just deal with this? Well, uh, I'm going to leave the court question uh, to Ned. I think (laughs) you should bring him back in right away, Mina, to... um, to address that, but let me add another <laughs> just potentially uh, shocking and, and deeply polarizing twist. There are four states in the union that could be critical swing states, including the three that put Trump over the top last time by a total of 77,000 votes, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, but now in addition, North Carolina. So four states with a lot of electoral votes that have Republican legislatures and Democratic governors. 
So the dueling delegations could wind up in a situation where the Republican legislatures are validating one slate and the Democratic governors are another. The second thing I want to say is I didn't quite finish the, the categories, uh, uh, the two categories of, of, of dispute. One would be um, uh, where you have a razor thin margin and you're really getting down to a Florida style situation or a recount. The other would be uh, potentially this, this is conceivable where when all the mail-in ballots are counted, Biden wins, say, Pennsylvania by, you know, maybe a margin of two percentage points, not, not razor thin, not a landslide either. But the Republican legislature says, we still think there was fraud. Uh, we're going along with Donald Trump here to say the mail-in ballots are intrinsically questionable. So Trump won the, the, the physical vote. So we're going to... Uh, uh, give him the electoral votes. Trump will insist on that. I'm predicting now hmm. uh, at 10.26 a.m. Uh, on this Thursday that uh, Trump will claim he was elected if he uh, gets a, a majority of the votes that were not cast by mail-in ballots in these states that give him an electoral college victory. And if that claim is made on grounds that don't involve close contestation uh, over, you know, narrow, narrow margins, and the Republican legislatures nevertheless cave into his pressure to give him their delegates, then we have, I think, a constitutional crisis of calamitous proportions. Wow. I wish we had you on the record for, for better news than that, for a better prediction than that. But uh but you heard it here. Let me go to Pat in Berkeley. Hi, Pat. Join us. Hi. Um, when you talk about Congress making the decision as to who's won, do you mean just the House or do you mean the House and Senate together? And if so, how would that work? Pat, thanks. Ned Foley? Sure, Pat. It's a great question and it's a really complicated process, so I'll try to simplify it. Um, there's two stages that happen in Congress, and the meeting is on January 6th. Uh, that's Congress has set that date. And the first stage is to go through alphabetically of all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, you know, starting with Alabama and ending with Wyoming, and open the packages of electoral votes that come from the states and announce what the, what's inside those packages. Um, and again, ideally, there's just one package from each state. And so it's a straightforward procedure. And most years, again, in American history, this is just a formality. It's a ceremonial event on, on January 6th. But if you do get that situation, like in the Hayes-Tilden dispute, where you have two different packages from the same state and both candidates are still claiming victory, that's where it, it can get complicated. Uh, the Congress, and we could go into details if you want, but basically Congress is supposed to decide how to resolve each state before it goes on to the next one. So if Pennsylvania is the disputed state, they're supposed to figure out, does it belong in the Trump column or in the Biden column, or do you throw the whole thing out uh, before you go on to Rhode Island? I think that's the next state alphabetically. So um, there, I think there will be pressure not to invalidate the votes completely, but to put it in one column or the other. That's, again, what happened back in 1876. And if you get to the end of the alphabet and after resolving those disputes, one candidate has the magic majority of the Electoral College of 270 votes, that's the answer. And that process can involve both the House and the Senate acting separately to evaluate any challenges or objections to these competing submissions. Um, and so that's kind of the first stage of the process. Um, again, very complicated. The second stage, many people may vaguely remember from history, this was what happened in 1824, believe it, all the way back then. If, if you know that no candidate got a majority of electoral votes, uh, in which nobody gets 270, then the Constitution itself has a fallback procedure 
that sends the election to the House of Representatives, a bizarre procedure where each state gets just one vote in the House of Representatives. So California and Wyoming have one vote each in the House. So each state's delegation shares a single vote. It's a very strange procedure. Um, there's been some public discussion so far this year that that's what would happen in if, if, if you have a dispute, but that's not necessarily the case. And again, 1876 is instructive. The Tilden team was kind of hoping to navigate the dispute into that procedure where they counted the votes in the House and knew that they could win if it got there. It didn't get there because Hayes was able to get in his column every single contested state. There were four of them that sent these multiple packages. Uh, and he needed all four to prevail, but he got all four. Um, so we, you know, if we do have a live dispute that reaches Congress uh, on January 6th after this election, you know, there, it, there's different ways that January 6th meeting could go. Wow. Well, um, Ali asks, if he's still around after next January, would he and his Republican cronies try to repeal the 22nd Amendment so he could stay in office indefinitely? <laughs> I think this is in the event that, that uh, Trump wins. Uh, your thoughts, uh, Ned Foley? Very hard to do a constitutional amendment. Uh, so I, you know, of all the scenarios that are worth being concerned about, that's actually not close to the top of my list. I mean, it's always open to citizens to try to amend the Constitution. And obviously, we did get the amendment that um, that now has the two-term limit. Uh, but I don't predict, uh, even if President Trump wins re-election, that there will be enough uh, popular support in the country to try to give him a third term. Well, we have a lot of folks weighing in with questions and concerns. Michael tweets, my biggest concern is that courts will rule that late arriving mail-in ballots should be counted well into December, pushing out vote certification, the electoral college vote, and leaving the outcome in doubt well into the next year. That's a little bit like what you were just talking about, um, Ned Foley, and also why Larry Diamond was saying that uh, he supports Senator Rubio's bill to try to lengthen that process of counting the votes uh, by another, what, three three weeks or so. But uh, I guess just really quickly, Ned Foley, what role do the courts play in all of this if it gets to this point that you're talking about in Congress? Um, yes, and this is where I think it's useful to think about uh, this process in stages or phases. So prior to the meeting of the electors on December 14th, um, we're likely to see a lot of court involvement if it's close and it's it's contested. And that would look more like Bush versus Gore because fighting over the counting of the popular vote is something that courts are familiar with, not just for presidential elections, but governor's elections or mayor's elections or so forth. And if people remember the fight over the so-called hanging chads that was the focus of attention, in 2000 in Bush versus Gore, that's a dispute and the equal protection principle on which it was um, contested could have applied to any election. It just happened to be a presidential election. So courts, I think, would feel more comfortable answering equal protection questions or other legal issues if it's absentee ballots or, or what have you. Minnesota had a, a U.S. Senate race that went to court over absentee ballots in 2008. This was Al Franken. Uh, versus Norm Coleman. Um, so that would be, I think, likely litigation in a close race. Once the electors themselves vote on December 14, whether it's just one uh, group of electors in a state or, or, or two in this competing situation, that's when the, the issue changes phases, if you will, and moves to Congress. And there it's really a big question mark about whether the federal courts or really any court could get involved, it would ultimately be the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. But there's something called the political question doctrine, which is designed to keep the courts out of issues that belong to other branches of government. And impeachment is one. Uh, the Supreme Court has said they can't touch the issue of impeachment because the Constitution puts that specifically in Congress. And many scholars of this issue think or guess that the court it's going to be reluctant to interfere with Congress's role in this process. 
Again, we don't know the answer to this because it's never happened before, but that's why um, people are guessing that maybe the court's involvement will be limited to the first phase before December 14th. Hmm. Well, let me go to Dave in San Francisco. Hi, Dave. Hi, how you doing? I'm well. What's on your mind? Uh, well, uh, my question is this, is that uh, it seems to me that uh, that Trump is pretty much already saying that no matter what happens, he's going to call foul. So it seems like people should be approaching it like it's not about like whether they, votes are valid or not. He's already made up his mind. So we need to progress to like what's going to what are we going to do about it? Because, you know, it seems like he doesn't have any alternative. Like he hasn't said, well, we need to do this so that the vote is equal. You know, it's accurate and we can count on it You know, being what it is. He hasn't offered any solution. He's saying it's not going to work no matter what. I mean, you know, personally, I think he's the most un-American president we've ever had. But somehow he's managed to pull a wool over a lot of people's eyes. But, yeah, so I was just like, what is the alternative? Because it seems to me like he's already saying uh, the, alter- the, the election is fraudulent. Dave, he's already said that. So yeah, thank you so much. And he's also just tweeted today. Quote, because of the new and unprecedented massive amount of unsolicited ballots, will be, which will be sent to voters or wherever this year, the November 3rd election result may never be accurately determined, which is what some want. Another election disaster sure. yesterday. Stop ballot madness. He says this today. And, you know, this is also on the same day that Dan Coats, right, his former national security right. or his director of national intelligence, says we must firmly and unambiguously reassure all Americans that their vote so- will be counted. So, Larry Diamond, yes, weigh in here. <laughs> Thank you, Mina. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I, I urge every one of your leaders to read Dan Coates's uh, op-ed in the New York Times today. It is one of the most important, forthright, and potentially historically significant statements that's been made Uh, about uh, the 2020 presidential election. Let me remind um, all of our listeners that, you know, Dan Coats is a lifelong Republican, uh, former 16-year senator from Indiana, and the man that Donald Trump appointed to be the uh, DNI, Director of National Intelligence, until fairly recently. So his Republican credentials are impeccable. And uh, he is proposing what I think I can speak for Ned and myself now because we've endorsed the idea in the same column you were referring to. Uh, He's urging the Congress to appoint a bipartisan commission uh, with nonpartisan actors too, possibly including one or both of the retired Supreme Court justices, Anthony Kennedy and David Souter, to be able to weigh in on all of these uh, electoral disputes and render uh, a judgment and a recommendation to the Congress and the American people. And I really think we need this additional element of dispute resolution. Well, we'll have more with Larry Diamond, Ned Foley, and you, our listeners, after the break. Lots of comments and questions coming in. We'll get started right after this break. I'm Mina Kim. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We're talking about concerns that the nation might not be able to avert a constitutional crisis over the presidential election, as we have in the past. We're talking with Larry Diamond, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford, also author of Ill Wins. Ned Foley is also with us, professor of constitutional law and director of the election law program at Ohio State University. He's the author of Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, The Rise, Demise, and Potential Restoration of the Jeffersonian Electoral College. You, our listeners, are also with us with your questions and comments posted on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email them, forum at kqed.org, or you can call us 866-733-6786. Lottie tweets, can Trump try to secure the military if the election 
gets taken to court. I mean, the role of the military, Ned Foley, in all of this, and do you see it getting there? What would make it get there? Well, and I'm going to defer to Larry, who's okay. more <laughs> on the military. But I, I will say the part of the reason why we wanted to write the piece in the Atlantic is, again, we, we're, we, we do not want to be overly alarmist, and we want to try to help avoid problems. Uh, but there are vulnerabilities in the legal system that could have cascading effects. In other words, the one way to stop the problem, the reason why both of us are so supportive of Senator Rubio's bill is if you give states more time to work things out at, at the level of the state, you prevent this from becoming a problem in Congress. If it gets to Congress, that's worse. That's the comparison of 1876 to 2000. Um, but what's even worse than it arriving in Congress on January 6th is if Congress kind of breaks down and can't really handle the dispute, partly because of inadequacies of, of the rules that we could discuss. Um, and But the, the unimaginable thing and the thing that we absolutely have to avoid is two people claiming to be president at noon on January 20th. We can only have one president at a time. We, the Constitution tells us that the current term definitely ends at noon on January 20th. Um, and we're supposed to have a clear transition to whoever's entitled next. Um, but if two people insist that their president starting at noon demanding the nuclear codes, that puts the military in an untenable position. So it's precisely to prevent the military from being involved in, in, in this way that we're trying to avert the problem in the first place. Larry Diamond, I mean, will it come down to the military in the event of chaos? Um, God help us all if it does. And I can only say again, uh, uh, Mina, I'm not kidding. I'm spending hours a day now on these issues while I'm trying to launch a class at Stanford and, you know, perform all of my other responsibilities because I'm living in fear of a crisis that would, you know, make Florida 2000 look like uh, a walk in, in Golden Gate Park by comparison. And, um, you know, I'd say it's a very implausible scenario that all of the different dispute resolutions would fail to the point where the Supreme Court hadn't weighed in the Congress couldn't resolve it. You had dueling dispute, dueling decisions in the Congress as well, maybe House and Senate, and you get to this kind of situation on January 20th. But you know, Florida 2000 was uh, an immensely implausible scenario, and uh, that came down to the wire. And in 2000, you had competing actors who were far more committed to democratic norms and the constitution and the rule of law than the incumbent president is. And it is that lack of commitment, which one of your callers has already underscored, that you know heightens the scope for crisis and underscores the need for an independent bipartisan commission to be uh, you know, an arbiter of a potential dispute. Yes. Well, I feel your pain in terms of having to focus on this, because what does it say about our country if this is the question that we have to dig into and spend time focusing on this notion that somebody may not concede when, I mean, the peaceful transfer of power has been basically one of America's, I don't know, beacons. It's sort of like a cornerstone of our democracy. Larry Diamond. Right. Well, um, you know, Mina, I have spent uh, 40 years studying democratic development, democratic transitions and democratic crises in developing countries around the world. And I frankly never dreamed that we would be in a situation in the United States of America uh, where we'd face this kind of crisis that could basically uh, do in uh, electoral democracy in the United States. But I, I think more and more Americans are realizing that that is actually what is at stake this year. Well, let me go to listener Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie. 
Hi. Um, I wanted to say I hope a lot of people vote early so that the outcome is more decisive. And um, I wanted to ask how close we are to this interstate compact that some states have signed on to to give all of the uh, electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. Carrie, thanks. Ned Foley, could you respond to that and just give a little bit of background on this interstate compact that Carrie's talking about? Sure. So um, because the, the Constitution sets up the Electoral College that is a state-by-state -state system, as we well know from 2016 as well as 2000, it is possible to win a majority of the Electoral College and, and be behind in the overall national popular vote. And so what the compact is designed to do is um, it's kind of an ingenious idea. It's that if enough states sign on, that they collectively have 270 electoral votes. If they pledge to each other, not to appoint their electors based on their own state's results, but on the na nationwide result, then those states in the compact can control the electoral college, but control it in a way that it's the na overall national winner that wins. Um, so the national popular vote, they would go based on that, right? Correct. So it's a very clever idea. There is a question mark about whether it's constitutional, given the structure of the Electoral College and whether the Supreme Court would get in, uh, intervene on that. I think, um, and uh, we could have a great conversation on that topic. This is a reform to think about for the future. It, 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 there's about 70 electoral votes missing, I think, if by last calculation. In other words, there, there are quite a number of states in the compact, but it doesn't take effect until you reach that magic number of 270. And um, they need, I think, around 70 more electoral votes. If, if we could double check it. But, so it's not going to happen this year. And uh, I'd be happy to have another conversation. I'm a big fan of amending the Constitution to, to convert to a form of a national vote and get rid of the Electoral College. The, the problem with the compact as I read it now is it allows for what's called plurality winners. So in a three-way race, you could have you know, two candidates kind of splitting the opposition to a certain third candidate. And so one candidate could kind of sneak through with 40% of the vote and 60% really not like that person. And the system was designed to have a majority winner and the and the compact doesn't do that. But that, I think that's probably a separate conversation. Sure, but if they're 70 uh, electoral votes shy, what's the likelihood they'd get to that by 2020, it sounds, I mean, by uh, November 3rd for the 2020 election? Well, it's not going to happen for this year, for this year, <laughs> yeah. for this year exactly. Uh, well, this listener writes, I hate the notion that there are battleground states that decide the election. We, the people, decide the election, not just the state that takes the longest to tally their votes. I believe the media could provide a huge service by not releasing any poll numbers or state results until a winner is determined. This listener writes, do either of your guests listen to conservative radio while your guests are expressing their views, Limbaugh, Levin, etc., are describing how radical left-wing Marxists are plotting to steal the election? What do your guests imagine will pacify Trump supporters into believing U.S election laws matter any thoughts on that larry diamond uh well this is why um again i urge everyone to read uh dan coates's uh op-ed in the new york times this morning i think actually mina we could put together a bipartisan uh commission uh to advise on a potential electoral dispute that would include people like Coates, I, he'd be a great chair of it, uh, who had worked for Donald Trump uh, and, you know, who might have supported Trump, but believe in democracy and in having every vote count. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Kind will never accept uh, uh, a Democratic uh, uh, Party victory in the 2020 presidential election. Even if Biden wins by 12 percentage points, they'll invent a reason why they think it's illegitimate. But I think that we need to get the bulk of Republicans in Congress and in the political system uh, to accept it. Uh, so that uh, really then, uh, if there is uh, a clear and legitimate uh, outcome state by state, um, 
the efforts to discredit it, both by radical social and other media commentators and by Russian disinformation, cannot gain adequate traction. Let me go to Nathan in Oakland now. Hi, Nathan. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I'm curious, in terms, I know we're talking of the presidential vote, um, but in the case of it actually going to like Congress and having to get figured out, um, is this figured out by folks who are currently in Congress, or is this going to be uh, decided by those who were newly elected? Mm, Nathan, thank you. Another listener writes something similar, Ned Foley. The Congress which would referee the election would be the one currently in session, right? Can you address Nathan in this listener's question? Yeah, it's actually the new Congress. So the on the Constitution says that on January 3rd, that's the seating of the, the new House of Representatives and the newly elected senators join the, the rest of the senators who aren't up this year. So it is the new Congress. Um, and then three days later, January 6th, is when they have this special joint session to, to open the electoral votes from the states. Uh, now, um, again, I, I don't want to overly complicate things, but, but some of us who are trying to think of all the different possibilities uh, you know, worry a little bit about given the fighting over ballots, you know, whether you could have a Senate seat, for example, caught up in a dispute over absentee ballots the way that Minnesota seat uh, between Al Franken and Norm Coleman was for, for months. So um, it may come down to counting votes in the U.S. Senate, uh, but but hopefully not. Hopefully it's clear and decisive again that we we know for sure in December the winner and that we really don't have to worry about the January meeting. Well, Shannon asks, if we drop our ballots in a ballot box early, will they be counted as quickly as an in-person vote? Do you either of you know the answer to that? Yeah, this varies state to state. Um, if for those people who vote by mail and do it on the very early side, like North Carolina already is um, voting by mail today and has been for a few days now. Uh, and if you're if you were in North Carolina and you already voted, um, those will be among the first ballots counted and reported on election night because North Carolina is a state that allows for what's sometimes called the pre-processing. That's the signature verification and the registration verification. So they're all set as soon as the polls close to immediately announce all the vote by mail that has been pre-processed ahead of time. Um, other states, unfortunately, like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania right now, have rules that do not allow for any pre-processing of absentee ballots until election day itself. Now, the secretaries of states, the election officials in both Michigan and Pennsylvania are really trying to get that law changed to accelerate the process so that we don't have you know, um, un unnecessary delays in in counting votes, but that the, that hasn't changed yet. Um, so, but even in a state like North Carolina, to go back to that example, if somebody um, doesn't vote by mail on the early side, but kind of waits and procrastinates, this is why everybody is advising people, if you want to vote by mail this year, don't procrastinate because you, you both put your own ballot at risk because there are deadlines. You've got to submit it on time for it to be counted. But also the, the, the ones that are arrived just under the wire in terms of the deadline are the last ballots to be counted uh, after the in-person returns. They're the ones that could get counted not on election night, but the next day or the day after. Um, and so that's why the, the, the tallies may, may shift. Uh, so it really varies state to state, um, but if if you want if you feel the need because of the pandemic to vote by mail and you live in a state that does the pre-processing, you know there's no harm you know voting by mail and doing it at the beginning of the process. Well, Chris writes, this is a great conversation, but it's leaving me feeling helpless. Can you please have your guests speak to what we as citizens and voters can do to help avoid a constitutional crisis around this election? I mean, I think you kind of said one, Ned Foley, in terms of don't procrastinate in terms of voting. But do you have any other thoughts, Larry Diamond? I, I have a, uh, a couple, uh, and they are the two we propose uh, in our, um, uh, our op-ed, Mina, but now with a twist. There are two things the Congress could do 
before it recesses in two and a half or three weeks that could really transform the landscape of this. One is uh, adopt Senator Rubio's bill, which is if you're a Democrat, big D or small D, strongly in your interest uh, to postpone the safe harbor deadline for reporting electoral votes to January 1st. And the second is to appoint a bipartisan commission uh, to uh, help resolve any electoral disputes. Usually <clears throat> we say, write your member of Congress about an issue, but you know, they're disproportionately Democrats in the Bay Area. And so you think, well, they're gonna do the right thing anyway. There's no Democratic Party action in the House or Senate on either of these two initiatives right now. And it actually could make a difference if your listeners would write to Speaker Pelosi and urge her to move on these two uh, initiatives. Well, Greg writes, and I'm not quite sure how to read the tone, but this is so exciting, like binge watching Game of Thrones. I have my popcorn and giant screen TV, so I'm ready to watch the collapse of America. I mean, we often hear that people say this November election is the most consequential in our lifetime. And I mean, Larry Diamond, as you say, you've studied democracies for 40 years. Do you agree with this sentiment or are we just, you know, being hyperbolic here? Are we just, you know, overreacting? We want to draw out uh, in stark terms the dangers, not so that we can titillate and entertain any readership or listenership, but so that we can preempt the possible scenarios we're talking about. And uh, believe me, if these come to pass, it's not gonna be entertaining in any sort of way uh, that's going to be enjoyable to watch uh, or experience. And Ed Foley, final thoughts from you, we have 30 seconds. Right, so Lincoln at Gettysburg talked about government of the people, by the people, for the people, not perishing. We don't want it to perish. We're doing this because we believe in government of the people, by the people, for the people. Well, their piece is The Terrifying Inadequacy of American Election Law. It was published September 8th in The Atlantic. Larry Diamond, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. And Ned Foley, really appreciate having you on as well. Yeah, very much uh, enjoyed it, and thank you for having me. Ned Foley, Professor of Constitutional Law and Director of the Election Law Program at Ohio State University. Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Thanks to Blanca Torres for producing, I'm sorry, thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. And thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, and concerns. We're with you. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.